Okay, we are live when the thumb of power says we are live. And I see the thumb of power. Let's get this completely worthless non-medicine. I remember the days when I could have real medicine. Ah. Interesting thing happened before I get started today. Am I, am I being recorded at this point? Okay. Uh, here's my Ezekiel 16:48 through 50, Luke 17:26 through 37 uh, discussion a little bit today. I'll read this to you. Press release the Nobel Prize in Chemistry 2020. I don't know if you saw it, but I keep saying as often as I can, uh, as as it was in Noah, as was it, as it was in Lot, so shall it be at the end of the age. And I'm confident that uh, we are very close to the end of the age. The Nobel Prize was for chemistry was given uh, to two ladies, the Max Planck Unit for the Science of Pathogens in Berlin, Germany, and uh, a lady from the University of California, Berkeley, for the development of a method for genome editing. And here is the synopsis of it. Genetic scissors, a tool for rewriting the code of life. So they have a new... Not new, it's been around for a little while, but it's being developed at an extraordinary rate now. Genetic scissors. Uh, it's called Technology's Sharpest Tools, the CRISPR CAS9 Genetic Scissors. Using these, researchers can change the DNA of animals, plants, and microorganisms with extremely high precision. Let me read that again. Using these, researchers can change the DNA of animals. Humans are animals. Oh, alert there. Plants, microorganisms with extremely high precision. This technology has had a revolutionary impact on the life sciences, is contributing to new cancer therapies, and may make the dream of a curing inherited diseases come true. Romans 5. Researcher, uh, Researchers need to modify genes and cells if they are to find out about life's inner workings. This used to be a time-consuming, difficult, and sometimes impossible work. Using the CRISPR-Cas9 genetic scissors, it's now possible to change the code of life over the course of a few weeks. Daniel 12.4, the knowledge of man will explode at the end of the age of the Gentiles. There is enormous power in this genetic tool which affects us all. It has not only revolutionized basic science, but also resulted in innovative crops and will lead to groundbreaking new medical treatment, says Clays Gustafson, chair of the Nobel Committee for Chemistry. <coughs> Excuse me. As so often in science, the discovery of these genetic scissors was unexpected. During Emmanuel Charpentier studies of Streptococcus pyrogen, one of the bacteria that causes the most harm to humanity, she discovered a previously unknown molecule, molecule tracer RNA. Her work showed that tracer RNA is part of the bacteria's ancient immune system, CRISPR slash CAS, disarms viruses by cleaving their DNA. Charpentier published her discovery in 2011, the same year she initiated a collaboration with Jennifer Dugna. I hope I'm pronouncing their names even remotely correctly. An experienced biochemist with vast knowledge of RNA. Together they succeeded in recreating the bacteria's genetic scissors in a test tube and simplifying the scissors' molecular components so they were easier to use. In an epic-making experiment, they then reprogrammed the genetic scissors. In their natural form, the scissors recognized DNA from viruses, but Charpentier and Dugna proved that they could be controlled so that they can cut any DNA molecule at a predetermined site where the DNA is cut. It is then easy to rewrite the code of life. What they mean by that is physical life. Since Charpentier and Dudna discovered the CRISPR-Cas9 genetic scissors in 2012, their use has exploded. This tool has contributed to many important discoveries in basic research, and plant researchers have been able to develop crops that would withstand mold, pests, and drought. And medicine, clinical trials of new cancer therapies are underway, and the dream of being able to cure inherited diseases is about to come. 
true. And of course, the singular greatest inherited disease is that which causes aging, the mortogenic factor. These genetic scissors have taken the life sciences into a new epoch and in many ways are bringing the greatest benefit to mankind. As it was in the time of Noah, so shall it be, and Lot, so shall it be at the end of the age. So I think uh, even though that technology has been around for a while, the recognition of what it could do is becoming increasing and increasing as uh, this pandemic is causing the cooperation between the microbiologies, microbiological scientists. Okay, just thought I'd throw that in there because that is the warm, fuzzy part of today's lecture, the uplifting Hey, here we are, October 11, 2020, lecture discussion 119, I hope, on the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Ecclesiastes. Ah, whenever one is confronted with the number of components, what I like to call them is spinning plates on sticks. That's my most common metaphor uh, for what's called, uh, what I would call a mathematical inductive scriptural analysis of the Bible. I'm not doing something correctly? Okay, but you're waving your arms? Okay, just uh, being uh, immature. Is that what you're saying? Okay, just wanted to make sure about that. It scares me when you're waving. I think something's going to land, a plane or something. Okay, keep your hands to yourself. That's I learned that in kindergarten. <laughs> anyway, I look at the Bible mathematically, inductively, and I think that that's why uh, I believe that's a... a, a Oh, excellent way to do it. I call it again mathematical inductive scriptural analysis. I've been saying that for quite some time. But you have to take inventory of all of the pieces eventually. And so uh, if you want to think of it this way, what have we got to here? What have we got? Everything is entangled with everything. That's the essence of the Bible, the scripture, all scriptures. Uh, but within this parameter of our current subject, which is the body of Moses, the body of Adam and the body of Christ, uh, it's time to ask, as it usually is, what pieces do we have that obviously connect to which other pieces? The Bible is literally an infinite three-dimensional jigsaw puzzle, if you want to think of it that way. It's not accurate, actually, but it gives you some kind of view of what you're up against. It's designed and constructed by an intelligence that is unimaginable. We have no idea what we're dealing with, with God. And we may never know. It's, it's, it cannot be, infinite intelligence is not imaginable. And each time we suppose we have a passage of scripture understood, especially me, every time I think, oh, I've got it. I got all of it out of there. I got it contained, if you want to think of it that way. Then I open a door, and what do I have next? I have a thousand more doors, if not ten thousand more doors. That is the way the Bible has been written. And I'm doing my best to demonstrate this principle with the Adam-Moses-Christ relationships, which is Romans 5.14. And today I'm just going to kind of gather all of this. So I have Romans 5.14 and Deuteronomy 18.15. Those are where Adam and Moses, as you know, are identified specifically, set aside, selected out as types of Christ. And even trying to limit the scope to the death of Adam and the death of Moses and the death of Christ is impossible because every time I think we've got it settled down, then off we go. You know that we have Psalm 1610 where the holy thing will never go into corruption, the holy one. And we have, of course, its complement in Acts 231. So there you go. Just to start this subject, that's how we begin with those four. Hopefully that makes some sense. And of course, once I have these down, then obviously I'm going to end up in Genesis 2-7. That's where the breath of the life of the Spirit of God is put into the body because I have the uncorrupted body here in 7 or 16:10 of Psalms and Acts 2:31. So, uh, and then of course, if I have the uncorrupted body, the, as you know, nor will you allow your body to, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Uh, we've talked about this. That is an unbelievable statement. And the ramifications just to go sideways, up and down, everywhere in Scripture. And that's why Genesis 2-7 comes up, because the body of Moses, the body of Adam is there waiting for the breath of life, not in corruption, as we've discussed. I hope you remember that. If you haven't, it's in 
a previous lecture. That is the body of Adam receiving the breath of the spirit of life. That, of course, Ecclesiastes 12, 6 and 7. And if you get to Ecclesiastes 12, 6 and 7, and you understand what's going on in Genesis 2, 7, and you get back to Acts 2.31 and Psalm 16.10, then you've got Luke 1.35. And if you've got Luke 1.35, then you've got John 17.50. So that's just a little bit of it, isn't it? Luke one thirty five is the revealing of the holy thing, which brings in John seventeen fifteen, which is the revealing of the evil thing to the discussion. Which, of course, if now now that I have the holy thing and the evil thing, what do I have? But yeah, you're absolutely right. I got Genesis three fifteen, seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent. <coughs> That's what I have to do just to get started with Romans five fourteen, Deuteronomy eighteen eighteen fifteen, trying to confine it to just the bodies. Of Christ, Adam, and Moses, not in that order. And it goes on and on and on for the rest of our lives. This is how the Bible is put together. Doors leading to thousands of other doors. And I say that this is, of course, prima facie evidence that the Bible, though men were used as agents to write it physically, compile it, if you would, could never have been conceived by a human brain. It's, it's only through the agency of the Holy Spirit that this book could have come into being. The mathematics are absurd. So what do you do when you have hundreds of spinning plates on sticks and you're racing around exhausting yourself trying to spin the plates, keep them on top of the sticks, and you've got hundreds of them? Uh, you don't want them to crash and break. What do you do as you... Rush from plate to plate and spin it. What's the solution? How do you get going on this? Well, the answer is obvious. When you have hundreds of plates spinning and they're starting to wobble and you've got to run around, what do you do? You add more plates. The answer is always add more plates. That's how you keep doing this. And so today we're going to begin with the continuity of soul. I have covered the continuity of soul. Continuity. Learn to spell. Continuity of the soul. If you wish to say mind, soul, spirit, all of those can be interchangeable in this discussion. So I've talked about the continuity of germ cell plasm in the past, uh, but this is a, a little bit more specific. So. That plate is coming today, and all the plates that come with that are coming today. And in this case, it's, it's Thomas, right? Because it's John 20, 25. That's Thomas. Whenever you're in a discussion of the continuity of the mind, spirit, soul, you end up with the Apostle Thomas in John 20, 25. Thomas said to the other disciples, unless I see in his... Let me read it here. I'm not try to just... Hope I get it right. Yes, ma'am. Oh, you never pushed the button, did you? You came over here and and did everything. Okay, now do I push it again? Okay. I I thought so. I didn't do anything special. You don't have to thank me. It did cost you $4 for that, though. Okay. Just thought you need to, just in case you weren't really cognizant of my wages. <laughs> Where am I? Now, Thomas called the twin. One of the twelve was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So Thomas said to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and I put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side I will not believe that's what Thomas says and I, unbelievable I can't do it justice it's just unbelievable what he said there 
the, again, hundreds of doors just opened up right here. Already you're asking, and you should be asking, what does this have to do with the body of Adam, the body of Moses, and the body of Christ? Well, perhaps some of you will already have begun to recognize the obvious that is obvious. How does or where does the continuity of the soul connect to Thomas's unbelief? And then once we have that figured out, we go to Genesis 28. Oops. Actually, I'd, I'd probably, I always say Genesis 28:15. It's a lot bigger than that. Let me give you, let's start at Genesis 28:10 and just go from there. Uh, probably stop somewhere in the 20s. Here's what happens there. Really quick. You know what this is, I hope, by now. It is the ladder at Bethel. Jacob's vow at, Le- at, uh, at uh, Bethel. Then he, then he dreamed. Jacob lay down in a place to sleep. Then he dreamed. And behold, a ladder. A ladder. Behold, a ladder was set up on the earth and its top reached to heaven. And there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord God stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie. I will give to you and your descendants. Also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. And in, and in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I am with you. And will bring you back to this land, for I I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. So I have, behold, a ladder set up on earth. Behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham. Welcome now to Exodus 3, 6 and Exodus 3, 14. I am that I am. What is your name? Matthew 22. Got to get him in there. That is where Christ uh, explains what he meant in Genesis 28. He explains that in 22, 29 through 33, which we have discussed previously. That is in with the that's mixed in with the Sadducee and uh, the Sadducees thought that they had a unexplainable conundrum for Christ. They did not believe there was anywhere in the Old Testament where God said he that Abraham, Jacob and Isaac had been not in that order. Abraham, Isaac and Jacob had been resurrected or anybody had been resurrected. There was nothing in the Pentateuch in the five first five books of Moses where resurrection was defined. And Christ did that in Matthew 22, 29 through 33. Uh, let me put that on there because people will want to know. So, again, I am trying to explain wh- how many spinning plates we have. And, uh, and you might respect the, uh, respect. You might recognize that third behold of Genesis twenty-eight twelve through fifteen as Hebrews thirteen five, right? So I have one subject today: the continuity of the soul. And here's where I'm at. The words of Jesus Christ, Hebrews 13:5. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to men? I will not leave you or forsake you as, as beautifully as you could ever say. It is evidence of the continuity of you. When you die, he will not forsake you and he will not leave you. That means you continue. 
He is with you. That's continuity of the soul right there in that verse. You, you can stop now. He just proved it. But let's uh, go on because I have, you know, I'm making how much? Four dollars an hour. I need that next four dollars. So here again, this is Matthew uh, 10, 28. And of course, Genesis 2, 7 again. And we'll put a circle around that. I will never leave you or forsake you. Okay, why did Christ reveal, unveil the ladder and then stand over the top of it and then declare that he is the God of the living and not the dead, which Christ, of course, used against the Sadducees, right? He combined Genesis 28:13 and Matthew 22:31 through 33. That's what he did. Why did he do that? Why did he... He's got Jacob laying down, going to sleep, if you will, and he is shown this ladder with these angels going up and down on it. And he says, he uses this exact phrase that he used to, to, to Jacob in, with the Sadducees. And the context of it was resurrection in the Old Testament. He proved to them, he destroyed the Sadduceans Argument and pretty much erased the entire sect. Now, there are some who believe that the Sadduceans went on to be the ones who uh, compiled and hid the Dead Sea Scrolls. But they were no longer necessarily enemies of Christ after that point. Now, that remains to be seen. I hope that's true. The whole point, yay, a whole point, not a little bit of a point, but a whole point is that he used that discussion with the Sadducees to bring up the latter and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in Genesis 28:13, and the angels going up and down. So we know that the latter represents in some way body resurrection because Christ used it to defend body resurrection as well as continuity of the soul. So he put continuity and the soul and body resurrection together at Matthew 22. Or 28, 29, oh no. ah, getting confused. 28, 29 through 33. 28. Oh, now i got to look it up. I don't want to make a mistake on that. I'm pretty sure I'm right, but I'm old now. And I make mistakes. It's Twenty-two. So, what did I say? Twenty-two. I wrote it down there. For some reason, I put twenty-eight here on the on the on my, when I wrote it out. The context is body resurrection, and he puts continuity of soul. I will never leave you or forsake you. I am the God of the living, not the dead. He puts that together with body resurrection against the Sadducees when he talks to them about this particular issue. Matthew 22. So next, why do the angels... All I'm saying is... Let me get a grip here. All I'm saying is is the continuity of the soul and body resurrection are combined together as two promises by Christ himself. Those two promises are linked together. And they go back to the latter. So something about the latter is body resurrection. Does that make sense? I feel like I have to say it five more times. Why do the angels... Why are they on the ladder going up and down? I told you the ladder was Christ. What's their assignment? What's their purposes? It has to be those two provinces. They're going up and down because there's two promises here. Continuity of the soul and body resurrection. So that's why they're coming up and down the ladder that is Christ. Previously, again, I made that case that the bridge is no question a symbol of Jesus Christ. The I am that I am. And so that means that the angels are within Christ, they're doing something in Christ's redemptive work. What is, what is, I hope that's obvious now. I don't have to, have to say it. Do I have to say what they're doing? Everyone says no. Some people say yes. Clearly, they have something to do with body resurrection and the continuity of the soul. And the latter is that which joins the heaven and the earth. The earth is a dying uh, uh, can, can, is in a dying condition, and so they are doing something that ha- they're doing something with respect to the death. They're gathering, aren't they? 
They're coming down, they're going up. And it is a death reference. I submit that you find the New Testament compliments of Genesis 28, 12 through 15 uh, is in the parable of the tares in Matthew 13. Oops, 41, 43 about. So let's go look at that. Matthew 13. He's telling what they mean. And he's saying that the, uh, he, they say, asked him to explain the tares, the parable of the tares of the field. And he said, uh, he who sows the good seed is the son of man. That's me, he says. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom. But the tares are the sons of the wicked. The wicked, the evil thing. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. He also says that uh, uh, Do you want us to go out and gather them up? thirteen uh, twenty eight. That's what his servant said to him, and he said, No. He said, no, because you're idiots. Lest you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. But he says, I am the God of the living, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So the latter has something to do with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants. Okay, hopefully I made that clear. And, and that's how we get back to Thomas now in the continuity of the soul. What exactly was it that Thomas did not believe? He said, I won't believe it unless I can put my finger here and I put my hand there. I won't believe it. Believe what? He, he, wanted, he required this proof. Obviously, Thomas did not believe that Christ resurrected himself. They're saying, we have seen the resurrected Christ. He said, no, uh-uh. I got to touch it. I got to touch the hands. I got to touch the side. I got to see it with my own eyes. I'm not buying this. And he really didn't say I have to see it, did he? He said I have to touch it. So I want to see those nail prints. I want to see that the side that was pierced. So he wanted to touch the wounds on the physical body of Christ. He's looking for physical proof. He did not believe that Christ resurrected himself. So now, the body of Christ is resurrected, isn't it? So, what did I learn? I learned that the, the body of Christ was recognizable to Thomas, didn't I? He could recognize it. Eventually, he does. Now I have to ask the question. The body of Adam and the body of Moses, are they going to be recognizable? Are they going to follow the pattern that Christ gave? They're types, obviously they are. And now I'm going to extend it, aren't I? Obviously, you can recognize the body of Christ. So can you, will you recognize your own body? Will others recognize your body? I think that is an aha. Thomas knew when he saw him that this was Jesus Christ. Thomas saw, maybe he felt, maybe he said, okay, I don't need to, I'm not going to humiliate myself. I'm going to go, that's you. I see you. I see the. Wounds. I see the side. I think the side is a Matthew 17. It reveals the Shekinah glory. Uh, Thomas saw the resurrected body of Jesus Christ. Perhaps he felt it. And Jesus says to Thomas, reach your finger here. Look at my hands. Reach your hand. Put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas responds with the greatest statement made by any apostle of all time. My Lord, my God. He's the first one to say, God, that's God. You're God. And the evidence, the proof that Christ is God is the resurrection of Christ's body, which still bears the wounds. And note again that Thomas did not say, unless I hear the voice of Christ, he did not say, I got to see this stuff. He said, I have to touch it. So he's going by touch. 
Thomas would be unbelieving until the crucifixion wounds, the nails and the spear, until he was able to confirm the body that was standing before him was the exact body that was dead on the cross. This is not a different body. It's the exact body. Extrapolate that out. There are many who do not believe that we will be getting our exact bodies out there that sell books. Well, that would be a departure from the pattern of the template. God is going to bring your exact body. Well, what if my exact body was eaten by a fish? Well, then your body will be in the mouth of a fish and you'll spend the rest of eternity that way, walking around with a fish on top of you. No, don't be silly. This is why you study quantum mechanics. So you understand particle. And you understand information cannot be destroyed. Newton's law. Now, I've covered this subject before, albeit uh, setting aside a lot of the great mysteries and difficulties that are within it. And being now that I am infirmed and aged, I am no longer susceptible to the constraints of theological convention. In other words, I'm ornery. I've come this far. It is not much you can do to me anymore. And, and truth be told, actually, I've only occasionally adhered to the theological conventions. Because you see and you know, if you're listening to me and if you've been in church for any length of time, in the church business, because it is a business, unfortunately, there are seminaries where the gatekeeping occurs. The scholars there debate amongst themselves, and they never allow the church rabble. I define rabble. I'm pastor rabble. They don't want me to participate in these discussions. I will ask them questions, and I have done it. They don't respond well. They never respond well. I've had one of them take his Bible and slam it on the table in front of me and protest that I ask questions like I do. I told him there was still a chance for him to go back to his seminary and get a refund. He did not appreciate my proposition there. Generally, we are told, us rabble, to subsist on and repeat the simple Hebrews 5:12 through 6:6. 6, 6. He says the opposite, doesn't he? You should be teachers by now. Get away from the elementary principles. The elementary principles are not simple at all. They're the five resurrections. They're the, uh, they are the Yom Kippur ceremony, the laying on of hands, the transfer of sin. Uh, the, the two goats, one goat for Azael and the goat that was sacrificed. Those are not simple subjects. Those are the feast days. Ultimately, you end up with all the feast days. You get one, you get them all, right? All the doors. You've got to go to all of the doors. So those aren't simple, but that's what Paul says are the simple things. That's not in the church. The church has gotten rid of what Paul called the simple things and went down to things that he wouldn't, I don't even know if he'd recognize them as Bible teaching. At the end of almost every sermon is, please give me money. I hope you feel better. That I don't believe is Bible teaching, neither facet of that. But I digress rant. None of that was on page six. Not hardly any of that. That's when I get into trouble. I'm just holding page six because it means nothing to me now. I hope somewhere in page seven I can find out where I was. The instructions from the learned people is stay to the basics. You, nor, neither you nor your congregants can handle it. Anything beyond that, just understand. You can't do the complex. That's for the select few gatekeepers, which are us. Give us money. And being that I am, I default just because I am a compliant, meek uh, person by nature. I'm a harmonizer. I really am kind of a harmonizer. It's a defect, unfortunately. But I submit to authoritarianism all the time. I have, I humbly capitulate never. So let's go back to questions. Why did Christ include his wounds? That's Exodus 21, 4 through 6. 
What's 21, 4 through 6 of Exodus? That is where the, the servant so loves the master and his wife and family that he puts an all through, uh, an all through his ear in the gate of the city forever. And he does not seek his freedom. That gives you a picture of why the wounds. Christ did include his wounds. Why did he do it? The compliment Exodus 21, 4 through 6. Why not remove the evidences of his death? I've answered the question in the questions, haven't I? Those of you keeping score at home, HTRP. He didn't remove the evidence of his crucifixion. Why not? I hope that that is clear. How is it possible for the created finite Romans to impact or affect, if you will, the body of the omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, omnibenevolent God of creation? How are they going to put a nail through his hands? I've done this at Ishtar. Many times, how, how are they going to do it? What is required? This is force equals mass times acceleration. Again, back to Newton. How much energy is necessary to break the skin of the omnipotent God of creation? A Roman with a hammer is going to do this and a nail, right? That's your plan? I got a spear. Again, force equals mass times acceleration against in, infinity. Do the math. John 10, 17 through 18 settles the argument, doesn't it? Did the Romans kill God? No. Did the Jews kill God? No. Did the body of Christ putrefy? No. The answer is no. It's always no. It's always going to stay no. The Romans could not do this. He has to participate. John 10, 17 through 18. John 10, 17 through 18 is a critical piece of information almost all the time. I lay my life down. I can lay it down and take it up whenever I want. No one can take it from me. It's impossible. I'm infinite, omnipotent God. And some would say, what about Acts 2, 22? Through 24. The protestants. They will shout into their phones. They would say, they'll say, oh, supposed HTRP, what about Acts 2, 22 through 24? I can hear you yelling into your phones. No, I can't. I'm pretending. What's the answer to that one? They will say, you one-eyed, used to be fat, now emaciated man. I loved being... I love being able to say pretty bold talk for a one-eyed fat man. But I don't get to say that fat man part anymore. I'm, I'm, what do we say? Sickly. Anyway, Peter, Acts 2, 22 through 24 is Peter's statement to the men of Israel. Him being delivered by the, the, by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. Let me say that better so I don't mess it up again. Him, Christ, being delivered. <coughs> Him, Christ, being delivered. There you go, is your clue. By the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and crucified and put to death. That's what Peter says to the nation of Israel that's gathered in front of him. That's his statement. And I'm aware that the bulk of commentaries for sale assume, portray this verse to mean that the infinite, omnipotent Jesus God, note that that is a redundancy, was executed by the Jews. You'll see that all over the world. Because he said, Christ being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you, Israel, have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. And they, and they infer from that that, they, that the Jews killed God. Can't be true. Isn't true. It's stupid. But again, there's lots of books for sale that you can buy. And then what do they become? I don't know what the value would be. But there is none in those books. What's that? Oh, it, it is indeed. It is a destruction of the deity of Christ. You are correct. As always. Usually. 
this time. <laughs> okay. It's not true or possible for the Jews to execute the omnipotent God. John eight or John ten, seventeen through eighteen. Roman involvement, likewise, not possible. Pro tips. Try again if that's your position. Christ was delivered. That's our first clue. He was delivered. That is what Judas does. He doesn't betray him. He delivers him. Everywhere you see the word betray, cross it out because it means delivered. Christ was delivered. First clue. Pro tip. Christ was determined or delivered by the determined purpose of the omniscient, timeless Godhead. This is the plan before they instituted time. It's before the foundations of time and the earth and the world and the creation. Revelation 13, 13. This is the case because it's the only possibility. It can't be any other way than this. And I realize that passages such as Acts 2, 23 through 24, those are triune passages and they're very confusing to people, though they need not be. The determined purpose of the theos, the word is theos, the Godhead. Now, it doesn't always mean Godhead, but it does many times. And all you have to do is look at the context and see that this is the triune Godhead being referenced here in Acts 2, 22 through 24. The Godhead, the purpose, the determined purpose for the Godhead, the foreknowledge purpose was for the second person of the Godhead to be delivered. Why was he being delivered for execution? No. Because you can't execute him. Do they know that? Yeah, they would know that. So why did they want him, why did they want him delivered? What was he being delivered for? He was being delivered into a what? Not both by the, by the Roman and by the Pharisaical. He was being delivered for a trial, wasn't he? He was being delivered to a judicial procedure. Yes, sir. Oh, yes. Do not get ahead of the teacher. I have a trial here, don't I? I the first Adam went through a trial, so we should expect that the second Adam would go through a trial. Did Moses go through a trial? Just take a guess. There are types of Christ. Romans 5.14, Deuteronomy 18.15. We should be able to find all of these complementary elements because they were selected out by the Holy Spirit, given to Moses and the other prophets to put them in place so that we would find them and understand who wrote our book, his book. So he was being delivered for a judicial process. Put to death then is to be understood as the sentencing. He received a death sentence. We do that all the time. We give people a death sentence and then we never execute them, right? We call that California justice. Sorry to pick on California, but nobody lives there anymore. Oh, that'll be soon. I'm kidding. Maybe. To repeat, John 10:17 is definitive. It is absolute. Christ could not be executed. Is that how much time I have left? Holy mackerel, honey child. Did we start on time? Okay, I've got to hustle now. Christ then, it was determined, would be delivered up for trial. That's what this is saying. And it has to be with his consent. Because without his consent, he could not be delivered. How much does infinite omnipotence weigh? Asking for myself, I have no friends. Just think about the mathematics of taking someone who is infinite and, and delivering him without his consent. John 18, 5 through 6. You all know John 18, 5 through 6. What happened at 18, 5 through 6? That's in Gethsemane. Christ, they're, they're, that cements the impossibility of delivering Christ for trial without him participating, without him assenting to it, as conceding to it, if you want to think of it that way. 
He submits to it. He says in John 18, 5 through 6, I am that I am. He goes back to, uh, where is, uh, yeah, Exodus 3.14. He repeats Exodus 3.14. What happens to all of those people that have come to capture him? Everyone falls face first into the dust. Genesis 2.7. Because what are they? They're, they're atoms. They're men. They fall face first into the dust. Genesis 2, 7. Genesis 3, 9 through 24. Is being brought to the forefront. Dave got a page ahead of me. Genesis 3, 9 through 24 is the trial and sentencing of Satan, Adam, and the woman. So Adam got a sentence, went through a trial. Christ has a, is going through a sentencing and a trial and a condemnation. Adam was not condemned. Christ was condemned, which now brings into Satan to the picture because Satan was condemned. And that's very interesting to me. But not for today. Is it not also interesting that the judge of all, John 5.22, he judges everything. We are things. He judges all things. Daniel 7, let's get him on there. Daniel 7, that's the ancient of days. Ah, 9 through 10. Isn't it interesting that the judge of all things submitted himself to be judged by who? He consented to it. He intended for it to be this way. Determined purpose from the foreknowledge of God that the second person of the triune Godhead would be judged by human beings. Why did the God-man allow men to deliver, judge, and condemn him. Why did he do that? That's a key question. In other words, why this trial? Why is it a trial by finite created things? Why is it uh, required in the redemptive plan of God? Because it is. It has to be. Omniscience makes it so. It's, it's, this is essential. That fallen man judge the judge. But again, uh, why is it a component of our salvation? Because it is a component of our salvation. And obviously, we should go about gathering all the other trials in Scripture, shouldn't we? All of which there are many. Pack a lunch. As well as the inspection process of the sacrificial system, because he's being inspected for blemish, isn't he? And this, they find none. So it is important for man to inspect him and find that he is innocent. Wow. God is found innocent. Innocent of what? Well, everybody says sin. He has no sin. But what's he being charged for? And, that, and, and so you, you have this necessity established of human validation as to innocence, but also to other issues. God Adam. Notice how I call him God Adam. God man. God Adam. Is innocent of that which he is accused what then, it becomes the question, what then is the totality of all of the allegations? How many complaints do I have against him? How many charges did he have? How many allegations against the defendant? Whom is the prosecution representing? Is it representing mankind? How about the angelic realm? Who's accusing him? Animals? They're living beings. Genesis 120, 121, 124, 130, 722. I left out some, 119, I believe. We have covered Exodus 17 and Numbers 20, haven't we, recently? I'm running out of board here. And I got get Numbers 20 with it. Numbers 20 is where Adam strikes, or smotes the rock twice. Exodus 17 is where he does it once. Where God is accused by Israel and uh, of murder and lying. Was Christ accused of murder and lying? I suspect the angelic complaint is, well, I know it is. This is exactly what, what Israel accused 
Christ of and what Israel accused God of in Numbers 20 and Exodus 17, murder and lying, I would suggest to you that that is exactly what Satan accuses God of when he's accusing God. When is he accusing God? Anyway, I'm a bit off track. Thomas, we were at Thomas. Thomas went from unbelief to belief by examining the physical evidences of Christ's resurrected body. Thomas believed that Christ resurrected himself after that. After he inspected, he just maybe even seen it, just maybe even, who knows what moved him. If he put his hands in, we don't know, somewhat implied that he did or inferred. So if he did, he went from unbelief to belief. By physical evidences, Christ believed that Christ resurrected him. I'm sorry, Thomas believed that Christ resurrected himself. And therefore, if he believed that, then he knew who Christ really was. Christ is the I am that I am of Exodus 1, 4, 3, 4, 14. The Elohim of Genesis 1, 1. Because he said so. You're God. Elohim. I am that I am. My Lord and my I am that I am. So somehow the body of Christ resurrected, but remaining scarred, if you want to think of it that way, with open wounds. And that's possibly true. We haven't seen them. We don't know. But somehow the body of Christ, with all of that, is proof of innocence and truth and goodness. He's not a murderer. He's not a liar. He's innocent. The resurrected body of Christ proclaims God's innocence. The char- to the charges of murder, to lying, and, and, and also the one that he is the source and the creator of evil. Because that's what he's being charged with at the angelic realm. Look at the charges at the earthly realm. Especially look at them in Exodus 17 and Numbers 20. And then ask yourself, did that happen again? So all of that to say, the resurrection of the body is proof of existence. I've said this a lot. How do I get there? It's really pretty simple. That's how I get there. Being that Genesis 3-4 and Exodus 28-16 are foundationally, fundamentally concerning existence. That's what they're concerning. Boiled to their essence. Satan is the accuser. He's the prosecutor, if you will. That We see that in Job 1-7 through 10. Oh, my gosh. Job 1, 7 through 10. Job 2. I can't remember. I should look it up. Job 2 something. Oh, I think it's 2, 2 through 6. I hope I'm right. If I'm not, sue me. I have $4. In those, two, in those two places, Satan is putting God on trial. The Lord says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and upright man, one that fears God and eschews evil. That's what he says to Satan. Have you considered him? Of course. Oh, my gosh. It's omnipotent, omniscient God asking a question, right? <coughs> he knows the answer. What's the answer? It's a rhetorical question. Of course, Satan had considered Job. Twice God says this to Satan. Twice Satan responds, saying that God is presenting a lie. That's what he says. You're lying. Job, he says, will be revealed as one who will curse you to your face. He will curse God to his face, he says. If God removes his hedge, his protection around Job. Job has a protection. He has a hedge around him. He's in a place where Satan can't get at him. Satan has to be allowed to get at him. He's being protected. Oh, what's that sound like? Where's the first hedge? Is Job equal to Adam? Again, perfect, upright man, one that fears God and eschews evil. I could say that's Adam. But it isn't. It's Job in this case. I've said previously that this confrontation between the Lord God and Satan over Job was before an audience, the entirety of the angelic host, both fallen and unfallen. They're all doing this because here I have the what? The accuser coming in front of the judge, don't I? 
Job does not have the ability, Satan says. Satan is attacked in free will and therefore in, in, in existence itself. In order to escape accountability, judgment and imprisonment, that's what he's trying to do. He's saying that, and it, I don't know if he believes it, he knows it's a lie. But he doesn't know what the solution is and no one else seems to know what the solution is. And God won't reveal it. Because the solution occurs before the foundation of time. It's determined by the foreknowledge of God. So Satan essentially is saying, Job does not have the ability to willfully choose good from evil. He doesn't have it. He can't choose good. He can only choose evil. That's Satan's accusation. And he's essentially again saying, I shouldn't say essentially over and over again, because I should be able to come up with another word that's essentially, not essentially. But he's saying that God is perpetrating a fraud. This is a fraud. Have you considered Job? Job isn't really good. Job is only good because you're making him good. And you won't allow me to demonstrate that he's not good. I can do it. And you know I can do it. And all the angels know I can do it because I've done it to the angels. At least a third of them. The rest of them you're protecting from me. Or we'd all fall. And then what's the implications of that? If only evil, choosing evil is accepted as proof of will and therefore existence, what results from that being true? Think like Satan thinks. That's one of his arguments. Obviously, this issue of Job 1, 8 and 2, 2 through 6, I hope. Pretty sure. It's, I know it's chapter 2. I don't know where for sure. God's um, God, who knows all things, asking Satan the same question twice. He asks him the same question twice. Does he, oh, I forgot to ask the question again. I didn't, you, you didn't answer it for me, so I'm going to ask you again because I don't know what you think. He knows all things. Twice he asks this question of Satan. And that means that this war in heaven, where the angelic war, the great dragon is cast out and defeated. Revelation 12. Satan, who has lied and deceived the whole world, the entire realm of, of heaven, Revelation 12.9, is thrown to the earth with his demons. I am bringing Job 1.8 and 2.2 2 through 6 to Revelation 12.9. Here's what it says in Revelation 12:10. after Satan is thrown to the earth with his demons. And what, 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 what's happened now? He is thrown out of heaven. He has no entry. So what does that mean? Why did it happen? Something had to happen to trigger that. What was it? But here's what it says in Revelation 12:10. And a loud voice in heaven says, Now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of the brethren is cast down, which accused them before God day and night. Lots of questions there. Who said it? Who's the loud voice? First question. Who is the them that is being accused day and night? But obviously, Satan is the prosecutor, isn't he? He is the accuser. And Michael, the archangel, who at Jude 9 would not refute Satan. He didn't refute Satan. I believe that's the same time as Deuteronomy 34 that, that, that's occurring in that timeline. So Michael did not refute Satan at Deuteronomy 34, Jude 9. And I think it's because he could not. I don't think he knew what the answer was. He said, let the Lord give you the answer. Let the, let the Lord rebuke you, which I think is an indication that he did not know how. He did not know what it would take to refute Satan because that which was foreordained, that which was foreknowledged and determined before the foundations, Revelation 13, 13, had not been revealed. Isn't revealed until Matthew 4, Luke 4. In any event, now at Revelation 12, 9, 12, 10, uh, Michael is unleashed here. And, and Michael and his forces drive Satan to the earth and they rejoice that Satan is removed from the heavens. They say to mankind, well, pretty much too bad for you. It is not true, it turns out, that angels can choose continual evil and stay in continual evil. That was one of the lies of Satan, that there was no other, there's nothing God could do about continual evil because continual evil demonstrated will. 
only continual evil demonstrates will. I get that argument today every now and then. There's a fly landing on me. I might be in a debate. Or I might be, need a bath. It could be either one. Is today Sunday? Oh, bath on Sunday. We'll have to make that Saturday from now on. Where am I being the HDRP? Michael now refutes Satan and drives him out all the way to earth. And the heavens rejoice because Satan has lost something. Something has changed. And like I said, it's not true. turns out that angels can always be evil if they want to be. Their creator and sustainer, the judge of all things, will bring an end to evil. And he's both able to do it and willing to do it. Two things that I believe he was accused of not being. uh, He had no possibility of doing because of some issue that Satan had risen. The blood of the lamb, it turns out, is the defining proof. If you continue reading in Revelation 12:11, and that causes a difficult question. How is it that the blood of Jesus Christ disproved, disproves the lie of Satan? All the lies, the totality of the accusation, all of the allegations, the blood of Christ disproves it. Revelation 12:11 happens to be, I should read it. Gosh, I don't have time, though, do I? I'm trying not to go slow because I know... What the problem would be. I put a lot of things on the board. And that takes time. But this deserves to be read a lot. And then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven. Now salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God. And the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before God day and night. Has been cast down, and they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. That is the final mention of blood of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Bible, right there, 1211. So circle it. That's the last time the blood of Christ is mentioned in the Bible. And so finality has come. You want to talk about evidence being submitted to the court, the blood of Christ is put into evidence. And it ends the debate and Satan is cast down and thrown out because it destroys his argument. Again, finality has come through the blood of Christ as evidenced by the ending of the accusations of Satan. His accusations are ended because they have been destroyed. Satan does never accuses again in the throne room of Christ on in heaven. He's not up there ever again. He's now he will end up on earth and then he'll go from earth to the abyss and then he'll finally go to the lake of fire. But his abode, his ability to, to get into the heavens is ended by the blood of Christ, Revelation 12:11. He doesn't accuse again from this short time forward. Satan must resort to other means. His lie exposed and rendered mute. It's over. Useless. But how does it do it? How is this done? We can see that it is accomplished. But what are all the reasonings? I want to know the, the anatomy, the, the judicial trial arguments. I want to know. How, I want to see the checkmate, if you will. The moves. The body resurrection of Christ. 1 Corinthians fifteen twelve through 19 is critical. The body resurrection is critical. If there's no resurrection of Christ, our preaching is empty. Our faith is also empty. 1 Corinthians fifteen fourteen. Don't have time to put it on the board. If Christ did not resurrect himself, then nothing is resurrected. None are resurrected. Our faith is futile. 1 Corinthians fifteen seventeen. And I should say quickly, First uh, Corinthians fifteen twelve through 19 is a triune passage. And it causes confusion because they don't recognize the Godhead, the Elohim there. Don't make that mistake. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 28 is the legal guarantee that the resurrection of Christ is the foundation of all resurrections. So now we are completely out of time, aren't we? Oh, my gosh. I'm going to just stand back now and throw things at the Holy Dry Race Board. Did Satan seek to stop the resurrection of Moses' body? Or did Satan intend to possess Moses' body, as many write and suggest? I think the legion into the pigs, Mark 5, 1 through 20, the legion being cast into the pigs, asking permission, reinforces the prohibition of demons' possession. 
demon possession without permission, invitation. So I do not believe that Satan wanted to possess Moses' body and turn it into some kind of figure that he could destroy Israel with. Job also establishes the need for Satan to ask permission. So, again, I don't accept that Satan sought to possess the body of Moses. Satan knew that uh, he was going to have his own seed, right? So why would he need Moses' body for that? He'd have his own seed. It would be vastly superior. Genesis 3.15, possessing Moses' body would be unnecessary. So that's not what happened, in my view. Did Moses' body go into corruption? Think about that. It was without any diminishment. He pulled the... He pulled the spirit out. Did the body go into, correct, into corruption? Yes or no? You have to think about that. Uh, at some point, uh, Revelation 11, because I have the position that that is clearly Moses and Elijah. Did Elijah's body go into corruption? Did Enoch's body go to corruption? Well, they both went into heaven. Obviously, there's, there's something different about these guys, isn't there? Is Moses part of the Enoch Elijah? He is, he is coupled with Elijah, Revelation 11. Are they the same? What, how does this work? Consciousness, uh, changing subject completely. Consciousness cannot be explained by mathematics. That's critical. Consciousness is not subject to a materialist law, a physical law. There's no physical law that can deal with, with consciousness. Nor can mathematics, which is a consciousness-based system. And you're going to encounter those who define free will as not free, and then they conclude there is no free will. From It's, a, it's ruling out free will by their definition of free will. That's what they do. That's chasing your tail logic. It's circular. But that's what they do. They do the same thing in evolutionary theory. They do the same thing in global warming. Uh, they define it, and then they rule out things based on their definition. Science, they've been saying. Science is only that which is, uh, which is secular. There can be no science that is theological. Another subject. No one can choose their soul. You did not choose your soul. That's Ecclesiastes 12, 6 through 7. Your soul was free will, therefore must be given, right? Because inside the soul is free will. Free will must be permitted. The issue is not the freedom in the will, but the will in the will. I may not make any sense, but it will in three weeks. The issue is not the freedom in the will, but the will in the will. How much will is in the will? The bud of Christ is the cause of all resurrections unto life as God so defines life. So all resurrections that are living resurrections, not the dead, the living resurrections, those are resurrections. They are caused by his blood. He says so. God's definition of life was put on trial by the lie of Satan. Satan said, your definition of life is not true. The resurrections of the body of the believing to eternal life are predicated by the body resurrection of Christ, his blood. Thomas recognized the resurrection, resurrected Christ. The body of Christ had the characteristics of the, the body that died. The resurrected body had, this, had the characteristics of his death. Our bodies will therefore be recognizable. We will know it's our body. We will know it. That's continuity of the soul. As well as the resurrection of the body. The two promises put together. We're going to know each other. Christ's blood assures this. Because all resurrected bodies of the saved, of the living, will have what in them? It's communion, isn't it? They will all have, we will have a blood transfusion. Let's shut it down, my gosh. Will the man ever shut up?